Chapter 10 of the AEF with General Pershing and the Armed Forces. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The AEF with General Pershing and the Armed Forces by Haywood Bruin. Chapter 10 Marines. They tell me, said a young Marine, in his best confidential and earnest manner, that the Kaiser isn't afraid of the American Army, but that he is afraid of the Marines. The youngster was hazy as to the source of his information, but he never doubted that it was accurate. He felt sure that the Kaiser had heard of the Marines, weren't they the first to fight? And if he didn't fear them yet, he would. At least he would when Company D got into action. No unit in the American Army today has the group consciousness of the Marines. It is difficult to understand just how this has happened. Everybody knows that once a regiment or a division or even an army has acquired a tradition, that tradition will live long after every man who established it has gone. There is, for instance, the Foreign Legion of the French Army. Thousands and thousands of men have poured through this organization. Sickness and shrapnel, the exigencies of the service, and whatnot have swept the veterans away again and again. But it is still the Foreign Legion. Some of its new recruits will be Negro houseboys who have missed their ships at one of the ports through over-protracted sprees. There will be a gentleman adventurer or two and a fine collection of assorted ruffians, but in a month each will be a legionary. I saw an American Negro in a village of France who had been a legionary until a wound stiffened a knee too much to permit him to engage in further service. He was a shambling, shuffling, whining, servile Negro, abjectly sure that some kind white gentleman would give him a pair of shoes or at least a couple of francs. But he had the Croix de Guerre and the Madame Militarie. He had not cringed while he was a legionary. The tradition of this organization, however, is based on battle service. The Legion has seen all the hardest fighting. The tradition of our Marines rests on something else. They have seen service, of course, but it has not been considerable. Their group feeling was at first surely defensive. There was a time when the Marine was a friend of no one in the service. He was neither soldier nor sailor. Many of the Marine officers were men who had been unable to get appointments at West Point or Annapolis, or having done so, had failed to hold the pace at the academies. And so the spirit of the officers and the men was that they would show the Army and the Navy of just what stuff a Marine was made. And they have. It is true that the Army and the Navy have ceased long since to look down upon the Marine. But the pressure of handicap has been maintained among the Marines in France, just the same. It is largely accidental. For instance, when the American troops were first billeted in the training area, the Marines were placed at the upper end of the triangle, miles further from the field of divisional maneuvers than any of their comrades. And so, if Joffre, or Patain, or Clemenceau, or Poncier, or any of the others came to review the first American expeditionary unit, the Marines had to march 22 miles in a day, in addition to the ground which they would cover in the review. Curiously enough, this did not inspire them with a hatred of the reviews, nor did they complain of their lot. They merely took the attitude that a few miles, more or less, made no difference to a Marine. I remember a story a young officer told me about his first hike with the Marines in France. They had 11 miles to do in the morning and as many more in the afternoon. After a brief review, the young officer appeared with a pair of light shoes, with a flexible sole. Look here, said the major, you'd better put on heavier shoes. 
I think these will suffice, sir, said the young lieutenant. You see, they're modeled on a principle of an Indian moccasin. Full freedom for the foot, you know. The Major grinned. Come around and see me this evening, he said, and tell me what you think of the Indians. The man with the moccasin-style shoe did well enough until the company was in sight of the home village. Unfortunately, a halt was called at a point where a brook ran close to the road. The sight of the cool stream made the lieutenant's feet burn and ache worse than ever. I had just about made up my mind to turn my men over to the sergeant and limp home after a crack at the brook, said the lieutenant, when I heard one of the men say that he was tired. There was an old sergeant on him like a flash. He was one of the oldest men in the regiment. He had never voted the prohibition ticket, and rheumatism was only one of his ailments. But he hopped right on the kid who said he was tired. Where do you get off to be a Marine, he said. Well, we don't call a hike like this marching in the Marines. Look here. And the old fellow did a series of jig steps to show that the march was nothing to him. Well, said the young officer, I didn't turn the men over to the sergeant, and I didn't bathe my feet in the brook. I marched in ahead of them. You see, I thought to myself, I guess my feet will drop off all right before I get there, but I can't very well stop. After all, I'm a Marine. Even the Germans did their best to make the Marines feel that they were troops apart from the others. Only one raid was attempted during the summer, and then it was the village of the Marines upon which a bomb was dropped. It injured no one and did ever so much to increase the pride of the Marines, who would remark to less fortunate organizations in the training area, what do you know about airplanes? When it came time to dig practice trenches, other regiments were content to put in the better part of the morning and afternoon upon the work. But the Marines went to the task of digging in day and night shifts. There was a Sunday upon which Pershing announced that he would inspect the American troops in their billets. Through some mistake or other, he arrived in the camp of the Marines eight hours behind schedule, but the men were still standing under arms without a sign of weariness when he arrived. Historical tradition lent itself to maintaining the morale of the Marines, for their village was once the site of a famous Roman camp, and one of the men, in digging a trench, one day came across a segment of green metal that the Marines assert roundly was part of a Roman sword. In a year or two, it will be sure to be identified as Caesar's. The Marines were exclusive and original, even in the matter of mascots. The Doughboys had dogs and cats, and a rather mangy lion for pets but no other fighting organization in the world has an anteater. The Marines picked Jimmy up at Veracruz, and he began to prove his worth as a mascot immediately. He was with them when the city was taken. Later, he stopped off at Haiti and aided in subduing the rebels. He is said to be the only anteater who has been through two campaigns. Army life has broadened Jimmy. He has learned to eat hardtack and frogs and corned beef and pie and beetles and slum and omelets. As a matter of fact, Jimmy will eat almost anything but ants. Of course, he wouldn't refuse some tempting morsel simply because of the presence of ants, but he no longer finds any satisfaction in making an entire meal of the pesky insects. He won't forage for them. Things like hardtack and pie, Jimmy finds, will stand still and give a hungry man a chance. Lack of practice has somewhat impaired the speed of Jimmy, and even if he wanted to revert to type, it is probable that he could not catch nothing but the older and less edible ants. Of course, he does not want to go back to an ant diet. He feels that it would be a reflection on the hospitality of his friends, the Marines. The Marines are equally tactful. In spite of his decline as an entomologist, Jimmy remains by courtesy an anteater and is always so termed when exhibited to visitors. He has two tricks. He will squeal if his tail is pulled ever so gently, and he will demolish and put out 
burning cigars or cigarettes. The latter trick is his favorite. He stamps out the glowing tobacco with his forepaws and tears the cigar or cigarette to pieces. The stunt is no longer universally popular. The Marine who dropped a hundred franc note by mistake just in front of Jimmy says that teaching tricks to anteaters is all foolishness. However, Jimmy has picked up a few stunts on his own account. It is not thought probable that any Marine ever encouraged him in his habit of biting enlisted men of the regular Army and Reserve officers. There is a belief that Jimmy works on broad general principles, and many Marines fear that they will no longer be immune from his teeth if the distinctive forest green of their organization is abandoned for the conventional khaki of the rest of the Army. Some little time before the American troops first went into the trenches, the Marines were scattered into small detachments for police duty. Many of them have since been brought together again. There is, of course, a good deal of stuff and nonsense in the stories about soldiers saying, we want to get a crack at them, and all that. But it is literally and exactly true that the Marines, both officers and men, were deeply disappointed when they could not go to the front with the others. Their professional pride was hurt. Still, they did not whine, but went about their traditional police work with vigor. I was in a base hospital one day when a doughboy came in all gory about the head. What happened to you, a doctor asked. A Marine told me to button up my overcoat, said the doughboy, and I started to argue with him. There are not many American songs yet, but the Marines did not wait until the war for theirs. Most of it I have forgotten, but one of the stunning couplets of the chorus is, If the Army or the Navy ever gaze on heaven's scenes, they will find the streets are guarded by United States Marines. End of chapter 10